And now, happening live after floundering around as if we were touching technology for the first time, you are joining the EdTech Situation Room, coming to you live from Oklahoma City. This is Wes Fryer, Tech Director at Cassidy School, joined by the amazing... Jason Eifer. Um, I'm joining you live tonight from Missoula, Montana. I'm the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school in fabulous Big Sky Country. West, welcome back to Stateside. Yes, well, as we were, we were saying before the recording was actually starting, um, last week I was boarding a 10-hour flight from Sao Paulo, Brazil to Dallas, and while the Wi-Fi was, you know, reasonably good, it, 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 they had blocked all the streaming services, and so it was it was good that we, we didn't connect. But what, where have your travels taken you in the last few weeks? Um, I've been to a number of meetings related to work. Probably the, the biggest one was I went to, uh, I'm the chair of the Curriculum Directors Committee of the State Virtual School Leadership Alliance, which is a, um, a group of about a dozen or so state virtual schools uh, that work together on curriculum and uh, advocacy and instructional models. And then I also had a really unique opportunity last week to attend a, a native language summit um, in popular Montana um, where representatives of the many tribal nations uh, around the state of Montana um, were talking about the prospects of using digital learning to help preserve language in, in their various communities. So um, very interesting discussion. It's, a, it's, a, it's an issue I'm actually quite passionate about. I had a good friend in college that did a lot of research um, on uh, indigenous languages and uh, the slow death of indigenous languages over the last century in the United States. And so it's something I'm glad um, that I can at least be part of the discussion. So. so we'll have to connect uh, with Nancy, and uh, we're talking about a Story Chaser workshop, you know, mm-hmm. this summer. Uh, I don't know if you've been looped in on that at all, but I'll have to, I'll have to loop you in because, you know, that digital storytelling and, and doing what we're thinking about more family, community, history, yep. it could be anything. It can be your tribe, your church, you know, whatever, whatever group. How cool. And yeah. there like, there's like seven uh, federally recognized tribes in Montana. Is that right? Yes. And, uh, the, um, we, uh, all, all but one are, 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 uh, have reservations and there's a landless, um, uh, tribe in the Great Falls area. So it's kind of, uh, uh they've been looking for recognition for like over 20 years in, in Montana. Oh. It's the Little Shell Nation. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting part, and Montana has been very proactive in the last 20 years to putting uh, uh, Indian education at the forefront of our discussion. We have a state law called Indian, Indian Education for Law that uh, tries to fund and push forward the constitutionally mandated um, education of, of, of both Native American students and then tribal culture and history throughout our state. So it's been a very big part of my own um uh, uh, work as a teacher since I've been in a classroom since the late nineties. And certainly it's something that, that, uh, we plan around and discuss and develop around as part of my job at the Digital Academy. That is awesome. Well, we'll have to, we'll have to chat some more about that. We've got 36 federally recognized tribes here in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And I think there's over 40 actually. And, uh, anyway, that's kind of a neat, a neat connection we have. Well, yep. if you are joining us for the first time, welcome. If you're coming back for more excitement, uh, you know, bless you. But uh, our goal here for the EdTech Situation Room is mainly to take a look at some uh, news from the past week, or in this case, we could draw from the last three weeks, and talk about the application for education, not just, you know, how this applies to the whole the whole world, but how does this apply to K-12 schools and virtual schools and colleges and all that kind of stuff. So, Jason, I'm going to kick us off with probably what everyone would anticipate, but the Apple announcements. Um, I, I did download on my Apple TV the new events app and last night, you know, finished watching the whole keynote, so I didn't just, you know, get my news uh, through the blogs, although I, I definitely did a bit of that. Um, but uh, any responses that you have to the the announcements, which I guess some people would kind of say are a little underwhelming. Uh, but any, any thoughts on any of those announcements, and especially as they might apply to schools? I think 9.3 is a pretty private big Sure. Uh, well, let's let's start with maybe just the hardware, because I, I guess I would echo the notion that it was a pretty boring hardware um, announcement. A you know announcing two new sizes of existing products is not uh, not a real exciting prospect. New bands. Um, new bands. 
Yeah, I know, I know. Um, and so uh, I guess maybe to talk about this separately for a moment, there is a smaller iPhone, which uh, I was surprised to hear that that uh, Apple in the last year sold 30 million of what I, I guess what I would assume would be iPhone 4 and 4Ss that are new, or maybe they were 5 or 5Ss, but whatever it was, it was the smaller uh, form factor uh, as new phones. And so it is, I think, smart for them to go into that market. Um, although uh, a lot of the Apple and iPhone blogs in the last uh, uh, 24 hours have pointed out that they don't expect many of those phones to be sold in the United States, um, uh, and it's be mostly an international uh, a product. Um, that said, I, you know I know a lot of folks that were pretty disappointed when the iPhone 6 was released because its size was something that they weren't really interested in. Um, uh, my wife, for example, kind of uh, decided that uh, uh, the size wasn't for her, although she ended up buying a 6S this year um, on contract and has been very happy with it. So, um, but, you know, I, I think that's a, a smart move on their part. Um, I, then, I think go ahead. that's a good idea to probably take things in turn because there's so many, so many different things. So I just dropped a link into the chat. Um, the iPhone just got its first real price cut from Business Insider on Monday. Um, you know, we, one of our general narratives here has been talking Google, Apple, mm-hmm. you know, Amazon, that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, we've said it before, it's, it's wonderful as an educator to not have to just pick one side and to be able to use right. tools from different ecosystems. But, you know, this article is talking about the international sales, talking about India, and talking about how, you know, Apple is going to have opportunities to be able to really sell at a lower price point. And, you know, it's, this is, this is important. I mean, the digital divide, I was just talking to my wife tonight, her, her kids, um, that are all homeless, they do not have, I mean, if they have internet connectivity, it is through a smartphone that their parent has, but they don't have an i. they have iPads at school. They don't have them at home. They don't have high speed internet, you know, basically, I mean, the, the digital divide is real and it's, you know, it's here in the States and, you know, it's, it's, it's abroad as well. Um, when I was in Brazil, the, the school where I was, uh, established in the thirties, a uh, very affluent international school, but right across the street and down the hill is a favela. One of the, uh, I think it's the second largest in Brazil with 80,000 folks uh, living in it. Uh, it's a shanty town built, you know, mainly of bricks, kind of a dangerous place. Not a lot of, you know, I think provided, you know, services, so I think this announcement is not just good for people who, you know, want a smaller phone. Oh, isn't that nice to have a smaller form factor? But when, it, when we talk about price and when we talk about the ways in which more folks can gain access to really powerful computers that they have in their hands and, and the opportunities. I mean, of course, it's fraught with danger and us staying on them all the time and not, you know, talking to each other on date night. But I think that monetary side um, is brought out in that Business Insider article real well, and that's significant. Um, and then also to note that while they did make a compromise on the screen size, there's nothing else compromised about the phone. The in- innards are, are basically a duplicate of, of the 6, I think it's the 6S, uh, the smaller size 6S, and that, that's impressive because that's both of those phones, the, the 6S and the 6S Plus, are incredibly uh, powerful phones, which um, I, I think is definitely a um, a boon to Apple to uh, squeeze that that hardware into a smaller form factor. Um, that said, you know, it goes back to the age-old debate at Apple, right? Steve Jobs always said that, you know, we don't, we're not in the business of, you know, customizing ever to every one of your needs. Uh, we will design the perfect product for you, and you will accept it because it's the perfect product, and it, it's definitely a different Apple. Um, the fact that we now have three sizes of iPhones, now that we have, um, what is it, four iPads, we have two iPad, or an iPad, an iPad mini, and then an iPad Pro, and an iPad sort of smaller Pro, like those, that's a definitely a shift in philosophy from Apple, and so um, I hope it, it, it bodes well for them. Um, I will note that uh, there was an, another interesting article, and I'll try to put this back in the show notes when I'm done. Walt Mossberg wrote in Recode today, Walt Mossberg being a longtime very a big Apple fan that he feels like that that the announcement the announcement was boring today and that last year's announcements um, were not super great that there was not a lot of advancement in the phone in in the fall announcement last year so the 6s and the 6s plus 
and he thinks that if Apple's going to stay competitive and dominant in this market, the iPhone 7 coming out uh, presumably this fall needs to be a super winner um, and really an evolutionary uh, phone. But I, frankly, I find that to be kind of a tall order. I mean, I don't I mean, at this point, you know, and, and I, I'm an Android phone user, to be clear. I'm not. I mean, I, I have an iPad. and I like my iPad a lot. But, you know, I'm currently using a, a Nexus 6 phone and. Um, and I like this. It's a, it's a great phone for me, but I don't know what's left to, to, to wow anyone. In fact, I thought if anything, the six and 6S and 6S Plus this past fall with the, the feedback on the phone and the fact that you can, uh, press and do different things with the interface, that's was, I thought the most amazing advancement in any phone last year. So, um, at this point, I think what they may be out of the wow that happened in the first four or five generations of smartphones at this point, making battery life better um, and uh, making these phones faster so they could run more complex uh, software products. I don't know what more you can do at this point year after year. Well, you know, and, and to bring it back to schools in the classroom, um, I think. One of the, the impacts of this is it's the normalization of the wow power of the smartphone. The more yeah. that that becomes the standard of, yeah, my phone can do that. And it's, and you know, I'm, I'm definitely still an iPhone fanboy. And you know, I, I sat next to somebody on a flight a few years ago that almost got me to go, uh, Android. And then my, <laughs> my kids almost revolted when they thought, Oh my gosh, dad won't have that new one, you know, for us to inherit. So <laughs> I succumbed to the peer pressure of my children, but, um, you know, the normalization of, of the power that we have in the phone and the ability that we have to be able to shoot video, to be able to publish it, you know, to be able to have that kind of a device. I mean, remember when, when digital cameras were rare in school and maybe it was the football team or, or sports, you know, coaches that are going to, are going to have them and you're going to have to check it out and then you're going to have to import it. And I mean, that has so radically changed in the last decade. It's, it's really amazing. So. I don't know. That's, that's where I think again, getting back to the price. But, but I will say this. Um, the thing I was, I'm, I'm interested in 9.3. Um, I'm interested in how that is going to solve or, or at least provide an, a way to solve the, the question. How do I turn this in to my teacher? I'm not as right. interested in near pod type. I'm going to broadcast and all you guys are going to see my screen and you know, uh, I mean, the last two years I, I had a car of 20 iPads in my classroom and, and so, got to play around with a lot of different things. And I don't, I don't think the best use of educational technology is to say, okay, class, let's all be on this page. And, and, and I'm going to use my, you know, technology tools to try to force your attention. You can do that to a degree, but the, the thing I'm, one of the things I'm most excited about is Apple TV. I posted a little video last night, just kind of showing, you know, folder organization, but streaming, streaming wirelessly to the Apple TV and I won't, you know, totally go to my geek of the week, but I went ahead and put in this because I learned this in Brazil. Air Parrot has an extension for Chrome that lets you stream to an Apple TV. And yeah. you, and in, in the case of the graded school where we were, they bought 50 licenses. They used device management on the Chromebook so they can have up to 50 of their students or teachers on Chrome, you know, simultaneously streaming to their Apple TVs. I mean, that is a very exciting thing to not be tethered to the front of the room, to have different students who can share their screen. And so I am, I am personally thankful that Apple is continuing to invest in Apple TV. Yeah. Jobs called it the hobbyist or the hobby thing or, you know, it right. wasn't that serious, but, um, I, we've, we've went ahead and, and jumped at home to invest in it. And then in school, I think I just set up my sixth one today. We've got, we, we have a, uh, two flat, a flat screen TV in each of our libraries and our, our middle division art teacher who for some reason just had never gotten projection in her room, you know, talked to her and she's got, you know, didn't really want to do the smart board. How about a TV? So $420 insignia at Best Buy, um, you know, TV that's mounted in there, Apple TV. So the whole thing's about 700 bucks with Apple TV yeah. and the, the mount, the $20 mount from Amazon. So that's, you know, that was one of the things that I was most excited about was to see the continuing development of Apple TV. It's incremental. Now with Siri, you know, you can, I guess, search for more things in, in more places, you know, but from an educational standpoint, it's not about the apps. It's about getting my screen, you know, up there and not having to plug in and being able to have the, I don't know what you call that, but the, 
the multi-screen classroom. Right. You just went dark, Jason. So I don't know if you just your your power just went out or uh, you you had a little camera camera. Can you, uh, I'm hearing you. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, um, you went still for a while, so whenever it's a connection issue, so. Oh. Maybe um, local. Yeah. Well, my kids come to the start of the stream. <laughs> um, so well, and I have to say that well, that's you, you've been at the University of Montana, where. Um, uh, my offices are located at in, in Zula, and that's that's the philosophy of the design of that building, which was open in 2011, is that there are a lot of screens all around the building, um, and the idea is that students can come and create groups around and, and uh, project and cast to um, uh, televisions. Uh, you know, bigger screen allows for good, interesting collaboration and to um, you know utilize you know, which is starting to become more rare a lot of people don't have desktops and large monitors anymore although you can pry my large monitors from my cold dead hands um, you know that that's that that's a great way to create a great interactive especially small group classroom without a lot of expense and I listened to you talking about a $700 setup with a 42 inch television and an Apple TV 50, and the amount 55. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's that's even that's even more awesome. But, um, you know, you you remember the days which were not that far past where it cost a thousand dollars to buy a decent projector or fifteen hundred dollars. And the now the televisions have largely replaced um, that expense. You can create a beautifully large television for a fraction of the cost of those projection units. That's it's a it's a great way, I think, to add, um, you know, a, a great media presence in a classroom. And, you know, I've been struck by this for a number of years. When I moved to Oklahoma in 2006, I could video conference better from my house over my cable modem, which at the time was like 10 or 12 down. You know, now it's 10 times that fast but than I could at our offices because AT&T was still on the, the uh, you know, T1s and all the, the channels and just basically doing it doing it the old way, not doing it over right. Um you know, the best, tel- the, the best screen in the house is generally the TV. And I, and I feel like we still have a challenge in school to say, how do we make the media environment? How do, how do we enable us ourselves to bring in rich media content? Like planet earth a few years ago when our family saw that, I was like, Oh my gosh, how can we have a better, more immersive media experience, you know, about learning of the, of the wonders of our natural world. And here we are doing this at our house. Um, you know, I, I think in school we're we're starting to rethink projection and not just smart board for everybody's room. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and it's you know some people with the surface touch. Somebody was telling me tonight. I guess smart board has a new multi touch. You know, single screen. I I don't think that is where we want to go. Where it's the single screen that we've invested in. I truly think it's students having devices, whether it is a Chromebook or an iPad being able to learn with it and then being able to have a way of sharing it, you know, not only synchronous yep. in the room, but also being able to, to publish and share, you know, other places. Yep. All right. Yeah, I could agree more. So a uh, couple other products, there's a new iPad pro, a smaller version, I guess it's a 9.7 inch version of an iPad pro. And um, I only, I didn't pay as close attention to that, but I'm assuming that's that has the pen and, the advanced touch features and the Wicom capability built into it, which um, I, I, I have no personal use for, but I'm assuming there's a market out there for, for that. Um, any thoughts about that product? My wife is still on her iPad too. So, you know, <laughs> uh, we, we were going to refresh her to the, the Air 1 without Touch ID. But, you know, taking a look at that, they did drop the price of the of the Air 2, I think. So again, it's like yesterday's technology, I mean, yesterday's yep. technology, which was unbelievable. Now it's a hundred dollars less, you know. Um, so I'm, yeah, we're going to, we're going to debate that. Um, my, my daughter's cheering because our, my desk actually completed the FAFSA form and got our, got our taxes all together yesterday. So my family's in shock that my desk is not covered with junk. Sorry. Um, I, you know, I, it's, <laughs> It's like our phone system at school, we're still on uh, an analog phone system. We haven't gone void. We might not be able to do that this summer. It's probably going to be another year. We're going to go from 1980s phone to 2016 in one big jump when that happens. And with the iPad, you know, going from iPad 2 to if she goes to Pro, um, I, don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what that is, but it's like you're, you're, you're jumping multiple generations. So it's not like, you know, and, and mo- let's face it, most people aren't 
I mean, a lot of the tech people we probably listen to on podcasts and things are getting each device, and so they're having these incremental bumps. But when you're going from iPad 2 to iPad Pro, you know, um, it's, it's definitely going to be faster, but the whole creation side and, and what that's going to look like. And, and also, I mean, there's some things, dash and dots and other kinds of STEM stuff that my wife has, which are incompatible with the older one. So right. it's going to be, that'll, that'll be exciting, and it'll be kind of fun to see her do that. And it also just makes you realize what exponential change is. I mean, we are continuing. I mean, people said Moore's Law is going to be over and whatever. No, not yet, you know. And Google's yeah. working on the quantum computer. And, you know, everything just seems to continue to keep going faster and faster. So um, I, I guess I'm I'm glad to see Apple continuing to iterate and, and uh, you know, figure out how they're going to um, – Try to have the next big thing. I don't think they've done it with the Apple Watch. This is not an Apple Watch. This is my my fifteen dollar, you know, Casio, whatever this is. Yeah, um, but uh, I think that you know, it's it's with the ecosystems being as they are, and I'm just so happy that things working, having technology that seems to just work is becoming much more normal at school as we have moved away from what was the old Microsoft. And, you know, we have Chromebooks and we have, you know, iOS devices. And so anyway, that, that the new normal to me in school means a lot fewer clicks, a lot easier and more reliable tech. Right. As long as your network is set up for it. So yeah, Absolutely. We kind of went a long way on that one. Um, maybe we'll go a little bit further off the top of the hour since we were delayed. Um, if you do have questions, I don't think I'll be able to see the chat because I'm on my iPad, but Jason probably can. And we also could have somebody call in. So amazingly, there are seven people. I think that that counts us too, though, right? I think we have five people. Yeah. So there's five, five folks that are out there. So if you'd like to, to toss us a question, you can, um, tweet with the, the hashtag EdTechSR and I'll, I'll follow that. And then Jason could probably see the questions that will be coming up in the uh, in the actual room. And if you want to dial in, you can click, you know, call in and, and you can join. So do you have any thoughts about 9.3? Do you know anybody who played with that as far as the new um, Mac, I should say iOS 9.3 classroom? Um, I've read, I mean, I've read quite a bit about it, but I don't know anyone that's, that's jumped in yet. Um, I'm likely to be working this fall um, in context of my dissertation research in a building that is um, pretty close to one-to-one iPads. And so I am looking forward to see what the teachers in that building do with uh, uh, that those particular features. But I, mean, I, I, I will say it's I'm glad they have finally gone in this direction. I think they've needed some um, something here for a long time. Um, I, I really sincerely hope it's not too little too late in regards to, you know, there's a lot of schools that bought into iPads early, found the management issues were too large, and then went, went into another direction. Um, I'm still a big fan personally. I think that the, the perfect classroom is a multi-device classroom that, you know, it's it's everything and all of the above. But, um, you know, I, I hope that this uh, allows those that do have a lot of iPads uh, to find some some easy management uh, for those devices. And that's probably the number one takeaway from this is we we live in a multi-device world. We've, we've probably said it before on the show. You and I are going to feel handicapped if somebody comes in and tells us you can only use, you know, one device. Uh, we're using multiple devices. Um, we live in a world that's full of open sharing, and we want to encourage more people to share. That means you don't want to put all your content just into iTunes U. If you're going to publish an iTunes U, that's okay. But there are lots of other devices that parents and students have. Everyone is not going to have an iOS device. And so publishing your content openly using, you know, Google tools and others, you know, things to be at wikis and places to share is really important. So, yeah, it's exciting to see see the new announcements. It's good to see Apple hopefully being a little more accommodating towards education um, but let's be frank, they're going to continue to look at the consumer market and, you know, where that market share is, which is out beyond school to, right. um, you know, have have their focus. But, it, you know, the, the tools continue to mature. And, and frankly, Seesaw is the most exciting app that I've seen, period, on iOS or any platform for students being able to turn stuff in and share. My wife is using it as a bridge now for her kids to turn videos into her that she can then retweet out. 
So she she's doing a, a uh, passion some passion projects. She had a kid today. He's going to do a vlog every day about his origami. And so he just he took his own video on his iPad, flipped it into Seesaw. My wife on her phone has it. She downloads it to her photo roll, sends it out, you know, via via Twitter. I mean, that's that's awesome. So yep. maybe Apple Classroom is going to move in that direction. But, um, you know, there's there are between Google Classroom, Seesaw and then other kinds of learning management systems that people have there. There are some robust tools that are getting even better that, that yep. let's do that. All right. Yep. We, we can't talk about Apple's announcements all all the time. So even if <laughs> five people. So. Uh, you want to toss out another another article? Yeah, um, I was uh, interested in an article that I saw uh, early this morning uh, reading the uh, morning news. There's a new app that Recode covered today called Blendle. And Blendle, which is an awful name, but Blendle is attempting to do something that is a um, uh, kind of an answer to what do we do now that we're disrupted? And I'm speaking, of course, of the news industry. But Blendola types to, attempts to do something that I thought would have been a great idea, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. I feel they're a little late in this. But Blendola essentially offers you access to um, premier publisher content. We're talking about, you know, the, the, the big kids, um, the, uh, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Time Inc., Washington Post amongst other major publishers, and their shtick here is that they're offering the concept of micropayments. So you see an article that you want to read, you pay, you know, cents somewhere um, uh, between 19 and 39 to get access to uh, parts of, 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 a, of an issue or individual stories. Um, and so the reason why I wanted to talk about this tonight was, was a couplefold. First, I mean, it is, uh, you know, if you want to talk about a disrupted industry, you'd have a hard pre- or hard time um, finding one that's been more upended than um, journalism and the, the kind of journalism industrial complex that has followed pretty aggressively uh, away in the past 20 years. But, you know, here we are now. And, and I would say I feel like that uh, at least I've come to some equilibrium with with news and that I still do access a lot of news, but I do now subscribe to two or three major publications uh, New York Times being one of them, um, you know, and I kind of focus my efforts there, even though there's a lot of free news available, because I, I want to fund journalism, like I want to pay something into that pot. But I think that there there's something here to schools in that I think you're going to start to see probably late evolutions. Like, I, I don't think these are things that are going to be on time to save their industries, but I think this is probably going to be the direction of things like textbooks. Um, you know, I think textbooks have still, you know, very much failed uh, to evolve with the times. Um, but you're going to start to see creative attempts to take publisher content and break it up into smaller parts um, and attempt to still monetize it that particular way. So, uh, Wes, would you be a Blendle customer? Oh gosh, you know, my bar for paying for, it's really interesting how, what your threshold is when you're ready to, you're ready to pay with micropayments. I'll admit yeah. that I've not used Patron, I think it's Patron, isn't that how you can donate to podcasters and stuff? Is it called? Oh, pa- pa- Patreon? Patreon, thank you. Yep. I'm trying to speak Spanish. Patreon, um, and that could be something to dabble with. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if there's enough there for people if that's just sort of coffee money that, that you're going to have or if it's going to be serious money. I mean, I'm I'm unwilling at this point. To, our, the Daily Oklahoman, which is, kind of, I mean, we have the Tulsa World and the Daily Oklahoman are our two biggest papers in the, in the state. And um, the Daily Oklahoman publishes a fair bit openly. The governor, <laughs> this will be the first time I publicly talk about this, and I'll try to be careful as I dance around this delicate issue. Um, we had a big voucher push by, uh, you know, conservative legislators in our state. Um, our governor, who's a Republican, came to my wife's classroom two weeks ago, and um, the photograph of them, you know, was was on page three of the Daily Oklahoman. Um, interestingly, that was not published openly. I would have to be a subscriber and, you know, pay for access to that, or somebody who is a subscriber sent me a link and I was able to click on that link. But, um, and I won't, I've, I've, there's going to be, there's a whole lot to say around that whole thing. I'm not going to, not going to go into, go into it now, but, um, 
I'll just say that the page that I'm on and, and my wife is on politically was was a very different page than than the one that was being advanced by all these photographs. I don't I don't pay for that, and I don't want to pay for that local news. The irony is, if we don't pay for that, like we're going to lose it. You know, yeah. because it takes money to have somebody be down at the courthouse or or follow the local politicians. And I, I read and I don't have the article link to put it in, but the 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 piece that I read was basically saying if you look at everything that was like a whistleblower or you know investigative journalism, Pentagon Papers, like there was somebody covering a local beat, and then nationally people got involved. I mean, there were there were journalists who were being paid to do what they were doing. You know, and then it became this example of the, what's that called? The fourth estate when we talk yep. about journalism. Yep. Um, this is really important stuff, right? We really, having a relatively, not our, our press is absolutely not totally free, no press is, but compared to, let's say, you know, Turkey, um, you know, we have a, a really robust journalism, uh, you know, fourth estate. So I don't know. I... I'm not sure how this gets navigated because kind of like with apps, when you see an app, it's like five bucks. You're like, five bucks? Are you kidding me? But then people will go buy a console yeah. game or, you know, you'll go, you'll go rent a movie. I mean, it's Redbox now and it's cheaper, but I don't know. It's, I, I don't think I'm at the point for, for embracing the micropayments. I probably should, but I don't know what's going to move my headspace. What it does make me think of, thinking about the classroom again is, you know, I've got an update playing with media. That was a 2011 publication. Posters has been dead for years. Um, and, and some, one thing that's fun about publishing yourself and not being beholden to, you know, Hachette or, or, or whoever is the, is the publisher is thinking about doing creative and iterative things. You know, it'd be really fun to publish that in some kind of a creative way where it was a little bit more micro payments that people were going to have, but then there was something more collaborative with it. You know, it could really advance this idea of what is a textbook? You know, how could we, how could we crowdsource things and learn together? And, you know, how could artifacts be submitted? Or I don't remember the name. There was an iPad app that got bought by Accelerated Reader. Maybe I even talked about this in one of the sessions. And I used it in some of the mapping media things that I did when I was video conferencing with Montana. I'm, I'm, and anyway, it's, it's a dead app now and I can't go to it because on my iPad, but it was so interactive and you could, you know, you could highlight stuff. You could see what students have read. You could have comments, all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, I don't know. I think the journalism industry is one of these cases that, you know, people look at and say, we don't want to be like that. You know, we don't want to be yeah. like that. Um, and so, I don't know, I rambled a long time and I'm not sure what I really said. Well, and, and I will say the, the, uh, at least in the context of, of Montana's good example of this, we've had mass consolidation of newspapers in Montana down to a couple of, of, of larger corporate interests, uh, newsrooms have been slashed across the state, and I think the quality of journalism has gone down. Uh, that doesn't mean I don't know. In fact, I know four or five journalists in Montana, and they're smart and hardworking people, but there's just... There's just there's just not enough uh, uh, time of the day to do you know the reporting that 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 needs to be done and so um, I'm I'm concerned um, and at the same time it's you know we we have a lot of of industries media is a good example of this um, that are um, you know facing the wrath of of, of the open internet. And they're still scrambling for models. Although related to that, uh, there was a, a note out uh, uh, overnight that I've not had a chance to dig into yet. But apparently, last year was the greatest year on record um, for the recording industry since 2011. So they've started an uptick again, uh, almost Me- like they're figuring out. Me- measured how, as far as no- amounts of money or numbers of. Uh, I'm assuming sales. So probably probably profits. Although now I kind of want to look. Um, to see specifically, but um, that doesn't mean that the RIAA is not still claiming that you know that they're they're still very cash poor in that industry, and compared to what they used to be, they they very much are. But you know, I do think that there's a um, you know there's something um, there's something to be said about we're still you know blindly feeling our way through this. Uh, industries are being upturned, and not the least of which. You know, our our industry is being challenged aggressively by these technologies. And so it's worth, I think, you know, uh, looking at these conversations, talking about how they impact us both as consumers, as professional educators, and then responding appropriately. 
Absolutely. Is it okay if I take us to the the FBI and the uh, Apple um, case with the? Yeah, go ahead. All right, so I'm um, I'm gonna drop I'm dropping this link in right now. If you, by the way, would like to access our links, you can go to edtechsr.com and then click links, and that's where we're putting our links. So this is an article from Engadget on Monday. FBI works backs off Apple, finds another way into the iPhone 5C. So um, Tim Cook talked about this at the beginning of the Apple event on Monday. How weird and ironic it is that Apple, this corporation, is suddenly in the role of defending the Bill of Rights and the Constitution and, you know, having to argue for, number one, code as speech, and number two, for encryption and why we need encryption and we shouldn't just have backdoors into everything because if you do, then guess what? It's not just the FBI that's going to get in. It's going to be a lot of other people. So um, I think that the implications for schools of this are, uh, number one, we have got to help people understand some of this tech magic. You know, it's not magic. It's technology. It's coding. So the whole hour of code, the STEM thing, I mean, that's when it was very, very wonderful to get to go to Brazil for these two days and do a two-day STEM institute and to realize that, um, you know, international schools, similar to independent private schools like the one where I'm the tech director now, very traditional, very focused on preparing kids with that traditional curriculum to go to selective schools. Um, you know, they, but there's, they're also exploring, uh, all kinds of things as well. And, and so I think that the bandwagon of STEM, the bandwagon of coding and, and, and also just science literacy, right? I mean, we need people to be savvy about this stuff. I finally finished listening to this book, The Pentagon's Brain by Annie Jacobson last night. And she has a quote near the end, because we, we hear about the survival of the fittest. She says, it's not the fittest who will survive and thrive. It's the smart. You know, it's the folks that are, you know, into to tech and, and being able to have agency over devices and not just be consumers. So I think there's, there's multi facets to this whole story. Um, and also be aware of what you post, right? I mean, essentially, yeah. if you, if you tick off the wrong people, and I need to drop this article. In fact, this was from your the podcast. You recommended the first uh, one, the first episode, which is? Uh, note to Self. Note to Self. They, I, I'm pretty sure, didn't they talk about the, the, the case where the guy tried to get, he hired hackers to say, what can you find right. out about me? Yep. Oh, my gosh. And it was so scary the way they were able to get into his device. And essentially, they could have ruined his life. We're talking draining his bank accounts, ruining his credit. Uh, ruining his public persona and just like, huh. <laughs> yeah. There, there's stuff in this digital world where, you know, thing and and you and we and we hear about these things with uh, the haters and with people who, you know, a female who will speak out about coding or gaming or something and then suddenly becomes the the target of just this vitriolic hatred. Uh, I don't know. I think. Digital citizenship is super important. It's a moving target. Things are, are happening fast. And um, I don't know. Those are a few of the implications. What, what do you think? I, I bet you side with the FBI, Jason, and you are uh, all for backdoors. Isn't that your position? Actually, I was going to accuse you of being the hacker that got into the phone. So that was going to be my strategy tonight. So, um, so um, yeah, I – I, I'm a strong believer in encryption. I think the FBI is wrong. Um, and it, the most persuasive argument for me is that, you know, if Apple has a backdoor key, that that's not going to stay in the government's hands for very long and that anyone has a key. Um, you know, and I, I think that's, that's a real problem. Um, you know, I, I'm under no pretenses that, that I'm perfect, um, in securing my data or information, but I think I'm pretty good and it's, it's not like it used to be. You can't put your stuff in a safety deposit box and expect that to be secure. You have to be more proactive and 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 almost regularly manage that um, um, as part of the process. Um, and you know your cynicism has to be both for prying eyes that you're not doing business with, but also prying eyes that you are doing business with. Um, in fact, all I, I just thought what my geek of the week is going to be. Um, I've been given a presentation a couple times in the last uh, month at conferences and and uh, um, Google festivals on 
Google's privacy settings. Uh, there's an amazing set of privacy settings that Google offers to you. And of course, you know, a lot of people are shocked. If you have a personal Google account and go to history.google.com, um, it's going to show you pretty much everything it has on you. I mean, it, it, all the cards are on the table. And um, I, I like to shock people a little bit with uh, two pieces of data. First, the location history, which Google keeps on you, which is pretty spectacular. And then um, I'm a, a an Android user, so I use Google Now a lot, which is the Siri uh, alternative on on uh, the Android platform. And every time I ask Google Now something, like navigate to Costco or um, tell me what the weather is in Seattle or is it going to rain next week, um, it not only keeps those searches in my archive, it actually keeps the audio clip of of uh doing that because that, that's not processed on your phone, that's processed on a remote server. And um and I, I bring mine up always as an example of this better to embarrass me than embarrass someone from the audience. Um and uh the funny one last time was that it was like five thirty in the morning and I was trying to figure out what the weather was and where I was traveling to 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 give this presentation and I was yawning during the thing. I was like, oh, what's the weather and oh. Um, and you know, like that, that's creepy, but Google tells me that information. Like it's got everything on me, but you know, no other company is, you know, setting up, you know, slick interfaces for it to see what, you, what data it has, uh, uh, it's collected on me. So, you know, I think that's a, it's an important part of this de- debate and discussion that, that does not get talked about enough. Um, and I think we need to be directing these lessons into classrooms. Like I don't, when we talk about no, uh, you know, the lack of digital citizenship training, I think we, you tend to focus on things related to uh, bullying and, you know, you know, stranger danger and that sort of thing. But texting. we don't. Yeah. Texting um, and and uh, the things you can do with that. that are sometimes less than savory. And as it turns out, you know, a lot of kids don't know what's being collected on them to deliver advertising. Um, I'm comfortable with that relationship because uh, I generally know where that data is going. I know it funds a lot of free stuff that I probably otherwise wouldn't pay for uh, that I value, but I'm not sure if the typical user uh, does. And I think that's an important part of the discussion that's getting missed. Well, the whole idea about Google and everything they're collecting and the intelligent ways they're being able to inform you about, hey, don't, you know, better leave now for the airport because, you know, there's traffic. Um, I, I dumped a bunch of links in, which are kind of all around. Well, the, the catalyst was the, the AI, uh, you know, what was it called? Plague, Plago. It was the, oh, the sadness and beauty of watching Google's AI Plago. So if you're not familiar with this, this was an article from Wired on March 11th. Um, we've had computers in the past that have been able to beat grandmaster chess champions. Mm-hmm. But until this month, we haven't had them defeat Go champions. And Go, which I actually was introduced to when I was at the Air Force Academy as a freshman. One of the guys on our debate team loved it and played it a little bit. It reminded me of Pente, but, you know, very simple game with two different colored stones and, and, a, and a grid, and then, uh, you know, I think you're trying to make, you're trying to, to put so many in a row or you can capture other people, but it's really complicated. This is absolutely fascinating because <clears throat> one of the things that's been predicted, which people are still, you know, very much uh, in different camps about, is the singularity, this idea that, you know, at some point we're going to have uh, artificial intelligence and computers that are going to exceed human capacity. Let me tell you, if you want to get freaked out about this, read the Pentagon's brain and uncensored history of DARPA, America's top secret military research agency, because Annie Jacobson just wrote about the declassified stuff. However, there is unclassified. I mean, she wrote, yeah, the the stuff that's in the public domain now that's unclassified, it's crazy. And we're not just talking about Terminator, Arnold Schwarzenegger stuff. Um, On my trip down to Brazil, I watched the movie uh, Transcendence with Johnny... No, I guess I watched that at home. It, I watched there's there's another AI movie that I didn't see. I watched that at home on Apple on uh whatever. What do we watch? Whether what's the other um, video that we have besides uh, Netflix that we have from Judy and Max? Plex. Do you use Plex, Jason? I do. Because <laughs> this is wild. So our cousins in Kansas City, they're on Google Fiber, have like 400 movies, and they share their Plex library, you know, to Apple TV. So transcendence is an AI is an AI um, 
you know, science fiction. But science fiction, this, the line between it is, is very small. So, you know, are we at, where, where is DARPA? If DARPA is 10 to 20 years ahead of where we are as consumers, where are they right now with artificial intelligence? And, and here's, and I'm not, I won't, uh, maybe I'm rambling too long about this, but Eisenhower warned us against the military industrial complex when he stepped down in 53 or whatever before, uh, you know, when his last State of the Union address. At the time Eisenhower was the president of the United States, the number one advisory group to the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff and the president and the Pentagon were a group of scientists actually called the Jason Scientists. So, see, Jason, you were well-named because they that was it. A lot of those guys came out of Project or Operation Paperclip, which is how we brought all these Nazi, you know, scientists, von Neumann and, and these guys who not only helped us with our space program, but with, with the Manhattan Project and nukes. Okay, so those guys were some military, but they were basically scientists, and they worked in universities. Those were the ones giving the advice. Guess who the number one advisory group to the Pentagon and the president is now that is the equivalent to the Jasons? It's called, I think, the Science uh, Research Board, and guess who they're comprised of? They are all members of the military-industrial complex, the chair of, of General Dynamics, the chair of you know Lockheed and, and these different companies. In the public record, what they are recommending is the Pentagon aggressively embracing autonomous weapons, which means robots that have the authority to kill. So I show them a picture of Jason and I say, here, drone, go kill him. And it goes and does this. And what they have in these in these public reports are, you know, commanders and and war fighters, the guys and gals flying the drones are not comfortable with this. We need to essentially use spin and narrative to help them overcome their discomfort trusting the machines. And, you know, it's not just drones, it's human implants. It's, it's, it's being able to do, you know, human uh, machine hybrids. It is, it is crazy. And so I'm, um, I'm pretty interested in all of this. And here's my number one takeaway. I want to do more with the ethics of STEM, not just let's build a catapult, let's yeah. learn to code, I want to talk about this. Like the last year I was teaching STEM, the United Nations in Geneva, Switzerland had a whole conference on killer robots. And it was about, should we allow autonomous weapon systems to exist? We have really smart people like Bill Gates, like Elon Musk, like Stephen Hawking, who say this could be, you know, humankind's final mistake. And it's, you know, very apocalyptic. But I mean, these are smart people that are, you know, seriously saying that this is not the, the right way to go. So my, my last takeaway about all this is we need, we, we, we not only need smart folks and we need to be encouraging a focus on STEM and on coding and, you know, yeah, being geeky and, and learning about this stuff and making things. We've got to talk about whether it's right or it's wrong. And, you know, Oppenheimer <laughs> changed his tune when it came to nuclear weapons and thermonuclear weapons. I don't think I fully was comprehending what a, the difference between a hydrogen weapon and an atomic weapon until I read or listened to the first chapter of Jacobson's book. Um, so there's a whole lot in that. But I, but I think there are, it, there's definite ties to digital citizenship and ethics, and I don't think I'm going to be doing this next semester. But this book made me think about it. My school, I have, I've taught you know junior high stuff and elementary, but it, and I've taught graduate and undergraduate. But like maybe a high school class and it could be the ethics of, you know, the ethics of STEM or, th or thinking of wrestling with some of these issues. Because th these are things that policymakers are probably ill-equipped to discuss. And as a public, this stuff is happening now, but we're not having the kind of dialogue. I mean, we're, we're just, our headspace is, is not where it needs to be. And I don't know if it can be where it needs to be, but. Some of it, I mean, to the degree that we can, we need to be better informed about it. We need to encourage people to think about right and wrong. And there, you know, goes to the, the privacy issues about what do you want Google to track about you and, you know, how comfortable are you being the product? But it also comes down to these big policy things about, you know, do we want our military? Do we want our, and maybe it's, maybe it's out of our control. Maybe there's no way that we can stop it. But I'm telling you, I did, few books have, have provoked me in the way that this one did. And I'm, I'm still, trying to process what it what it all means but it, i think it has implications for 
the ways in which we talk about STEM and we talk about, you know, values and character development and ethics. So that's a long rant. <laughs> uh, well, and I would say that uh, um, it's going to happen faster than any of us will assume. So uh, that, uh, um, you know, we talk about the as technology is starting to, you know, put its fingers even more deeply in the way we interact with one another, the way we transport ourselves, um, yeah, that that's all going to be uh, um, hold on one sec. Yeah. A ran, random YouTube video just started behind my ears, and I was like, "Where's all that noise coming from?" Um, but uh, um, it, it's going to happen way faster than we assume. And as technology starts to put its tentacles deeper into um, uh, our lives, uh, the 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 instance I'm I'm thinking of is the last year when the autonomous or when the uh, uh, I think it was a Jeep. Maybe cheap Cherokee, whatever it was, they it did a proof of concept. Yeah, they got hacked and they were able to take it off the road. And they had made some, um, uh, they made some economic decisions to put the entertainment system and the car systems on the same bus, which was, uh, you know, a bad mistake because those, you know, one system was really easy to get into, and the other one wasn't. But I think those are all implications here: is that um, we, you know, all want to be very um, cognizant that as technology in, inserts itself more into our lives, you think about the internet of things in our homes um, that, you know, sensors and um, uh, 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 switches and uh, things the that will, of your house. yeah, exactly. You know, you're, you're essentially, you know, opening your door to, um, you know, what I guess we hope are human hackers, you know, and not a cognizant computer, but, um, it's uh, it's definitely mind blowing and and coming coming to a home near you. So what what is your take on AI? Do you in the singularity? Do you do you have an opinion as far as whether that you know? Um, I think it's possible. I mean, I I think you get to a point where you know we're encouraging computers to make autonomous decisions. Um, uh, you think about now that most commercial air flights um, is is ninety percent computer controlled, um, and it's because they trust the computer more than they do the humans in, in those scenarios. I think that model is going to start to become more and more a part of of how we engage in everything. Uh, driverless cars are an example of that. Um, I think there's certainly um, uh, some applications to education. Um, you know, as we start to automate processes inside schools, um, yeah, there's, there's a danger in all of it. And I, I certainly like your approach, Wes, that where we need to start having these conversations is both in context of schools, but, you know, it's not a counterpoint to STEM because I don't think that's fair. It's definitely a, um, <laughs> it's definitely a, a side of it that we have to be considering. Yeah. And, and, and transhumanism, there was a, there was a conference in Austin for transhumans, human, and it's folks like you've got body piercing, but now you actually have folks that are putting, you know, circuit boards, you know, of some kind or other, you know, in their body mm-hmm. and thinking about, you know, what they're, they're going to maybe do that for artistic senses, but you know, we have prosthetics, but it's, mm-hmm. it's wild, man. The day, the days of the, of the uh, cyborg are are here, you know. Yep. We probably ought to do some Geeks of the Week and wrap it up. Uh, but if anybody wants to throw a question our way, incredibly, there are eight just, you know, out of their mind people that are still watching us uh, ramble on here. So if any of you want to send us a question, uh, there's still there's still time to uh, tweet it with the hashtag EdTechSR. Um, you want to go first with your Geek of the Week? You kind of previewed it already, but... Um, I totally forgot what it was, so maybe you should go first. <laughs> okay. And then you can come up with your idea. This is impromptu its best. All right. So mine, uh, two things. One is AirParrot for Chrome that I already mentioned. That is an extension, which you can buy individually for yourself, or you can license for your Google Apps for Education domain and then allow users that you're um, using device management for Chromebooks to uh, be able to stream to an Apple TV or a device running Air server or reflector. So that's very cool. And then the other one I will admit I have not used yet, but I just learned about it today. Uh, we've got a nice nonprofit in Edmond called the Div that is focused on coding and having coding, you know, camps and workshops for kids. And we're doing here in about three weeks uh, a workshop. And um, the director of that told me about Kiwi for Gmail. And so this is marketed as Gmail Reborn as a desktop desktop client. Um, it is not free, but we did um, we did talk I think last time about email 
um, or unless I'm having a flashback to something else, you know, <laughs> email is now this common denominator that's accepted. I don't, we don't have anybody at our school who doesn't do email in, in the corporate world, the business world. Um, and I'm, I'm interested in how folks are going to continue to try to kind of move that needle forward a little bit. Um, Google has their inbox app that I played with a little bit. That's got a lot of swipes and, you know, ways to process things a little bit faster. But anyway, I had not heard of this before. Kiwi for Gmail. It's, that's the website, kiwiforgmail.com. And, uh, I'm going to check it out and give it a try, but it looked like a new, you know, a continuing iteration of how do we, you know, make email better. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. I'll, I'll have to play with it and see. Great. Great. Thanks, Wes. Um, and then this week I'd like to share something that I may have mentioned before, but it keeps getting better and better each week. And it's somewhat reinvented, um, uh, computer experience I'm having. Um, there's a really great product available now that's called, um, Neverware Cloud Ready. And Neverware Cloud Ready is essentially a downloadable, installable version of Chrome OS. So you can take a dated computer, um, and I've seen it work functionally on computers that are eight or nine years old, and you can effectively roll your own Chromebook with an OS that is basically the same. There's been a lot of attempts. The one I keep thinking of is, is Cub, Cub Linux, which used to be all Chromiex, that created a Chromebook-like experience. It was essentially Linux. This is the Chromebook experience on on other hardware. And this was released uh, first in late 2015. I installed it at the time, and then it was wonky and was hard to install. And Flash, you couldn't install Flash with it. It was very clumsy. Uh, their latest releases in the last four weeks are amazing. And you can take dated hardware and turn it into a fast, efficient Chromebook um, that is, it, it's manageable like a Chromebook. You can uh, buy a license for your, your local, um, Chrome management console. Um, and they've been advertising it as, and part of the reason why this is such an amazing product is because, you know, Chromebooks are low end hardware. You can buy high end Chromebooks, but they're expensive and may or may not be worth it. Um, but if you go and buy the $200, dollar Chromebook, that's actually a fairly slow processor with a, a relatively little amount of RAM. But if you have a circa 2009 laptop sitting around, a dual core with you know, two gigs of RAM, which would be a dog on um, any modern um, iteration of an operating system, you can install um, the Chrome OS through uh, 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 the Neverware product, and it's as fast or faster than the typical out-of-the-box Chromebook because it, it it's it's better hardware, it's faster chips, and it's I've now turned four computers into this as experiments. Uh, um, a junky old laptop at the office, uh, something I had sitting around in a box here at home, and I prefer them to a modern Chromebook um, because they're faster. Wow, we have about twenty netbooks, circa two thousand nine, mm-hmm. just limping along on Windows 7 and and we're going to we're going to try this and see especially with the management I just got Google Cloud Print set up I was kind of excited about this at school we have these least you know Canon printer copiers and and so you set it up as a classic and you have to run a print server but anyway with the management piece you know we could have a Chrome box that could allow any user that you know comes in to be able to print to it so we're going to try this at school. I've heard you talk about it and, um, I want to, you know, we'll, we'll try it on, try it on a couple to see, but that, that's exciting to think about breathing new life in our old hardware. And that kind of takes us full circle back to the Apple discussion about iPhones and all this, because at some point it's like, do you really need more RAM? Do you really right. need a faster, you know, hard drive? Um, we're, we're getting, we're getting to the point where it's like, maybe not. You know, maybe this is gonna gonna do do the job well, or at least it's gonna be a a cheaper refresh for us until there is a more compelling reason to step up to better better hardware. Yep. All right. Well, we didn't have uh didn't have any questions from the the gallery tonight, but thanks for for joining us. Are you gonna be okay for next week? As far as you know, I am. All right. Sounds good. Well, we'll we'll put our brains together and uh, possibly have a guest, but it's been. Been good to be back, and uh, how has spring come to Montana? Or are you guys still in winter, or what are you doing? Uh, it's Montana spring, so it was 60 degrees on Saturday and it snowed this morning. So uh, we will be getting that weather shift back and forth 
probably for the next four to five weeks. So how about how about the Midwest? We had a beautiful spring break. I was gone for part of it, but it got into the 70s and then a little bit of a cold front come in. It was blustery and nasty today, wind blowing, all kinds of stuff. So one of those days that when I was in West Texas at Texas Tech, we would always have faculty come visit this time of year. You know, when the tumbleweeds are literally blowing down the street, people are like, you live here, you know, so, <laughs> but this too shall pass and, and it'll, we'll, we'll have some better days. So. Yep. All right. Well, the, the rains have come to Brazil. They were having a, a sort of three year drought and, and just the oh, wow. of rain. And anyway, so, and, and I did not come back with the Zika virus as far as we know. I, I didn't see any mosquitoes. So yeah, that, that's a good thing. Congratulations. All right. Well, thanks everybody. And, uh, please tune in again next week and we will try to, uh, keep it interesting. Thanks, everyone. Good night. Thanks for listening to another amazing episode of the EdTech Situation Room with your hosts Jason and Wes. Remember to subscribe to us on Twitter and Blab, and access episode show notes on edtechsr.com. Slash links. Content on the EdTech Situation Room is shared under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International License. Subscribe to our audio podcast feed in your favorite mobile podcatcher app, and check out our archived show videos on YouTube. The EdTech Situation Room, where technology news meets educational analysis.